let me be the, probably not the first to say, but let me be the next to say Merry Christmas. Uh, what a great opportunity we have today to come and to open up the Scriptures to look at Jesus as we prepare to celebrate His birth. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, uh, we're going to do a little Bible drill this morning. We're going to do something a little different. So if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. That will not be our focus, but we're going to start there and we're going to work through the entire Bible today. Actually, we're not. So there's my gift to you. Merry Christmas. But we are going to look at three different sections of Scripture, and I want us to look at these things because I want to, I want to do my best to help us understand. Uh, the, the title this morning is Responding to the Miraculous. And I want to look at three different miraculous births. I want to look at three different settings and situations, families that were impacted by the miraculous coming of a child. Uh, and let me just take this time to say that anytime a child is conceived, it is a miracle, it is a gift. Uh, sometimes the circumstances around the conception are not all that glorious, but I'm going to promise you no child is a mistake. Every child is started off with gifting and purpose and can be used by God to accomplish amazing things. We should value uh, the, the unborn. Uh, we should really do our best to make sure that we, we see them for what they are, that they are a human being uh, made in the image of God, prepared and uh, called out by God, and usable by God. However, how do we respond? What is our response when we have something like that happen? A miraculous uh, event like a birth. The Greek philosopher uh, Epictetus said this, We cannot choose our external circumstances, but we can always choose how we respond to them. That's pretty deep. We cannot choose our external circumstances, but we can always choose how we respond to them. That, honestly, in a nutshell, is, is kind of, in my mind, what the American dream is. That, that every person born here has the opportunity to choose for themselves what they will do. They can't choose their circumstances. Uh, you know, you can't pick your family. You can pick your friends, but God picks your family. And if you don't think God has a sense of humor, look at your family. Um, Chuck Swindoll said it this way, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond or react to it. Now again, we, we live in a culture now that is, is trying to flip that narrative. We live in a culture that's trying to tell you that because you were born in certain circumstances or situations, you are hopeless. I'm here to tell you, the son of an alcoholic can be a pastor. I, I could have chosen to follow the path <clears throat> that my dad followed. I, I could have uh, chosen to follow the path of self-satisfaction and self-pleasure to the, to the detriment of my own health. Instead, I chose to follow Christ. Christ chose me. And I responded in obedience. So we're going to look at these three miraculous births in Scripture. They all have a lot of things in common. There are two barren women and one virgin, each of whom were given a child in a, in a miraculous situation. So I want us to look at how they responded as well as how God acted in the first two. And then we're going to spend a little bit more time obviously focusing on the last one as we prepare for the Christmas season. If you would pray with me, and let's, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word together. Father God, thank you for this chance to gather. Thank you for those that have come out today on a kind of a dreary Christmas Eve. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today. Not me, 
Nobody needs to hear from me, but God, we need to hear from you. And your word and your spirit are, are active and breathing and moving. And I pray that they would do that today. Help edify your people. Help draw the lost. Help edify the saved. God, call us to a closer walk with Jesus as we look at this text. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So the first miraculous birth that we want to look at is the birth of Isaac. And if you'll look at Genesis 17, pick it up there in verse 15. Isaac was a type of Christ. All right. Now, he is a topology. He is a, a representation of who Jesus would be. You see a lot of that in Scripture. Again, all of Leviticus, all the Levitical law is pointing to the coming Christ and what he would do for our redemption that these uh, acts and rituals and ceremonies and celebrations really couldn't do. They were a shadow, as the author of Hebrews says, of the things to come. But, but we see this type of Christ because he came through very unlikely circumstances. And if you'll remember the story back, I believe it's Genesis 22, Isaac was actually born to be a sacrifice. An intervention of God in a miraculous way on the mountain where he sent a ram to, be, to, to take his place. But he was sent. This is another typology. This is pointing us to the, the gracious act that God would show when he would not just let his son go up to the mountain. He was the ram. His son was the sacrifice. He would allow him to be sacrificed. In Genesis 11.30, it tells us that Abraham's wife Sarah was childless, unable to conceive. And it says this, she was barren. Now that's a term that means she was unable, physically unable to have children. They were in advanced age. She had never had children. But we read that they were, they were old and they were hesitant when they heard this message. Look at Genesis 17, 15 and 16. God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarah, do not call her Sarah because Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Now, obviously, we have the gift of hindsight. We can see the history. We can see uh, the Torah. We can see all of the different kings all the way through David who came from this line from, from Abraham. From Abraham's faithfulness and his response and obedience, his faith is where we see the nation of Israel grow from. That first call of God in Genesis 12, leave and go to a place that I will show you. And, and Abraham by faith stepped out and went to where God had directed him. And here he hears this, uh, this crazy, I mean honestly for their age, I think Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, and, and you're not exactly, you know, getting ready to paint a, a baby's room at, at 190, right? I mean, nobody here, if your grandparents are not thinking right now, if we have a child, what will we name it? Probably not. So they were advanced in age. They were kind of, had kind of made peace with the fact that they were not going to have children. And here God comes and says, I'm going to give you a child. And now look at the response. We're not going to read all these, but in verse 17, we see that Abraham laughed and then he questioned. In verse 18, he offers another option. Never good, by the way, folks. <laughs> when God tells you he's going to do something a certain way, he doesn't need, your, he doesn't need you chiming in and trying to help out. Uh, in, in verse 23 through 27, we see he eventually responded in faith. But it was, this is a long process for Abraham to get to the point that he came to grips with it and he, he kind of owned the fact that he was going to have a son, that he was going to be given a son. He doubted. But God did what he said he'd do. Now that's going to be a running theme. I want you to hear me. He doubted. Abraham, Father Abraham, right? Like one of the most venerable forefathers of the faith. When we hear God described a lot of times in the Old Testament, it says he is the God of who? 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because it initiated with Abraham, that covenant relationship. And yet Abraham had doubts. Abraham waffled. He, he, he was not 100% sold on this idea. Even though this was an angelic uh, information, this was a, an angelic visitation, he, he was still not sold on the fact that at his age and his wife's age that they could have a child. They doubted what God told them, but God came through with what He promised. Abraham's response is one thing, but then go to Genesis 18, and let's look at Sarah's response. Genesis 18, starting with verse 10 through 15. Again, we're not going to read all of it, but uh, if you look at verse 12, Sarah laughed. Now, by the way, again, it's amazing to me when you go back to some of these great Old Testament heroes, how they don't exactly model how our response to Christ should be. If God tells you something, don't laugh. Just trust me on that one, okay? And I'll say this again. One of my favorite things to say is there is terrible theology in country music. Rock and roll music does not have any. It's just, it's just, it's all like Katie bar the door. Country, we have some of that. You know, we get drunk on Saturday night, still go to church on Sunday, and everything's okay. It's not. But, but you'll find terrible theology in country music. However, every once in a while, you run across a nugget, and this is the one that I ran across a few years ago that I hung on to. There's a country song, I can't remember who it is, but it says, if you want to hear God laugh, tell Him your plans. And that's okay, but don't flip it. When God tells you His plans, it's not good for you to laugh. Because His plans are different than yours. So she laughed and then she questioned in verse 12. She lied in verse 15. Again, not indicative of the response we should be looking for. But eventually we see that she did believe. Now, by the way, I'm not so sure that she really believed until Genesis 21 when she became pregnant. And by the way, ladies, if you doubted, <laughs> there's, a, there's a doubt removal system right there. God told me I'm going to have a kid. Yeah, I doubt it. At some point, <laughs> the doubt will go away. So again, he doubted, she doubted, but God did what he promised he would do. Why? Because God is faithful. The Bible tells us that he is faithful and even when we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He cannot go against His nature. That's who He is. He is a faithful God, and He will do what He has promised He will do. Now, before we go to the next one, I, I just feel, I feel like this is the time to say this. I, I'm fairly confident that there are people in this room today who are either in the midst of doubt or have periods of doubt. And, and maybe you feel like that's a terrible thing, and maybe you feel like that's you know, just like the un unforgivable sin that you would ever doubt. Can I just take some pressure off of you this morning? Abraham and Sarah doubted. It's okay. The God who formed you, the God who breathed life into you, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, as Psalm 139 tells us, is big enough, strong enough to withstand your doubts. Here's what I will offer you. I will challenge you with this. Bring your doubts to Scripture. Bring your doubts to the Lord. He will settle your mind. So not only the birth of Isaac, but number two, the birth of John the Baptist. Flip over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, by the way, this is a little-known fact. Uh, John the Baptist had the same middle name as Winnie the Pooh. I'm not sure how many of y'all realize that. 
I got dad jokes all day, baby. Don't, don't, don't sleep on the dad jokes. <laughs> Some of y'all are going to get that at lunch. Maybe tonight when you're opening that one present or maybe tomorrow morning. The poo, I got it. Winnie the poo. So he, he was a forerunner of Christ. Now remember, this is different from Isaac. Isaac was a type of Christ. He is Typologically, Isaac is a representation uh, of a shadow of what Christ would be. Born in unusual, un, uncertain circumstances, born to be a, a, an offering, a sin offering, but he would be, uh, God would, would save him by sending a ram. John the Baptist was not a type of Christ. He was a forerunner of Christ. It actually says in John 1.23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Which is, by the way, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. Uh, again, you have doubts, I've got scripture. Isaiah said it in 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 3, some 500, 700 years before. And here John the Baptist is saying, I am the one that Isaiah had prophesied about. I'm the one here to make straight the path, to make straight the way of the Lord. I'm, I'm the preparation for the one to come. He was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. His mother Elizabeth was uh, Mary's cousin. Um, but there was a problem with her being the, the mother of the forerunner of Christ. Anybody want to guess what it was? She was barren. <laughs> You're starting to see a trend? Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children. God said, bet you can. Elizabeth was barren. She couldn't have children. God said, but I need somebody to bring the forerunner of Christ, and you're the one that's going to do it. If you look at Luke 1, verse 7, it said they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And here we are again, and both of them were well along in years. So we don't know exactly how old. We don't, I don't think they were as old as Abraham and Sarah, but they were well along. They were kind of past their window. And so they were, they were, just, they were at that point, they were like, okay, I guess this is where we are. Her husband Zechariah was, was a, a priest, was working in the temple, and, and Elizabeth was just doing her thing. And all of a sudden, here we are. This message comes. And if you look there with me in Luke, in verse 18, her husband Zechariah was told this stuff and he worried I'm sorry, verse 12. He worried and he wondered. He was told what was going to happen and his immediate response was not praise the Lord. His immediate response was like, yes, Lord, I have no doubt that you'll do what you said. His immediate response was worry and wonderment. He was trying to figure this thing out. He was trying to get his brain around this message that he had been given. In verse 18, he even questioned it. He, he, he like, like boldly questioned it. Really, if you think about it, he was like, no, nah, man, that ain't going to happen. He, he had complete doubt. Not, not just a little doubt, he had complete doubt. So what happened to him? In verses 20 through 22, we see that he was made speechless. The angel basically said, you don't believe me? Okay, fine. You don't get to talk anymore. And so then we see that he had to write down his answer in verse 63. But I want you to see what happens when he turns that corner of belief. Look at verse 67. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read all the way through 79. I'm going to skip some. But I want you to get the gist of this. Then his father, talking about John the Baptist's father, then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Now skip down to verse 76. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the Christ. To shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet 
into the way of peace. Until the child was born, Zechariah was speechless. The child was born, and he had to, he had to, he had to have this moment of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to challenge you. We have to have that moment of being filled with the Holy Spirit before we're ever going to truly believe. Uh, maybe some of your doubt is because you've never really surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Maybe you have doubts because you're going through the motions. Maybe you have doubts because you've never owned your faith. Maybe your doubts are not coming from the weight of the message, but from the lack of weight of your knowledge. Maybe, maybe your doubts would be squelched. Your doubts would be removed. Your doubts would be eliminated if you would simply stop listening to every other noise in this universe and try to focus in and hear the Word of God. Hear the voice of God. Hear the, the text. Hear the Holy Spirit speaking, drawing, calling, breathing the life into you so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not to dance and speak in tongues and do all these things that we, that we kind of, sometimes we ascribe that to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, some, some denominations teach you must speak in tongues to, to be filled. That's not true. If you look at Acts, it just doesn't, it doesn't jive. Two of the three groups, it says spoke in tongues. One we don't see. So, so what is filled with the Holy Spirit? It is that peace that passes understanding. It's that removal of, of the terror and the doubt that, that, that weights us down and keeps us from fully surrendering to the will of our Savior. I, I've got a, a little, just a little statement here that I want to try to hang this on. Doubt is okay if it drives you to believe. Doubt is okay if it drives you to believe. But your belief, if it is belief at all, must drive you to preach. And I don't mean up here in the pulpit. I mean to share the Gospel. If your belief does not drive you to share the Gospel, it's not really belief. Doubt's okay. Listen, I had a lot of doubts. I've told this many times about wanting to be an atheist. I, I was raised in church. I saw some things that I just couldn't, couldn't, I couldn't balance out. I couldn't get my mind around. I, 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 I know nobody else has this experience in their church life. I saw church people doing very unchurch people things. Am I the only one? One of my biggest pet peeves is when we blame God for stupid people. Well, so-and-so so at the church hurt me, so I'm going to walk away from God. Man, listen, if people hurt you, that's another good reason to walk to God. Matter of fact, you should run to God. The people that hurt you are not God's people. Their, their, their sin is hurting you. Their foolishness is hurting you. Sometimes it's with the best intentions that they hurt you, but they hurt you because they're people. We, we are flawed. We are erred. We are fallible. We are not perfect. Uh, far from it. So when you're hurt by people, that should push you to God, not away from God. Your doubt is okay if it drives you to belief, but your belief, if it is belief at all, must drive you to preach, to share the gospel, or it's not really belief. We must have something in us when we come to know Christ that makes us, focuses our attention on getting the gospel as it is to people as they are. My job when I come to faith in Christ, when I repent of my sins and trust Christ, is not to look down my nose at everybody who hasn't done that yet. My job when I come to faith in Christ, when I repent of my sins, is not to walk around like I'm a foot off the ground holier than everybody else. I'm just another beg beggar who's trying to tell other beggars where the bread is. 
If your belief does not drive you to share your faith, it is not belief at all. Neil T. Anderson said, people will not always live what they profess, but they will always live what they believe. It's inevitable. It's uncontrollable. You must live what you believe. You don't have to live what you profess. You can say all kind of crazy things. But what, how you act is what you really believe. So, so the husband had doubts. Let's get back to our text. The husband had doubts. The, the priest, <laughs> the, the, the guy who should have known better, had doubts. So let's, let's look at Elizabeth. Look over in Luke uh, chapter, tw- chapter 1, verse 24. Luke 1, 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. So what did Elizabeth do? You know, what did Zechariah do? He worried, he wondered, he questioned, he was speechless. What did Elizabeth do? She just knew. She just knew. Let's be honest, man. Most of the time our wives get there before we do. Amen? When I was wrestling with the idea that I felt like God was calling me to ministry, uh, I, I don't know if it's pride or stubbornness, but things hold us back that sometimes our wives see first. Uh, when I finally, when, it had been a couple of years that I was wrestling with this, and I was trying to do part-time ministry, and I was trying to get a different job at the nuclear plant so I could do, have not work shift work and be able to be at church more. Uh, when, I, when I left the nuclear plant in August, uh, I had three days of vacation left. I had used all my vacation, and most of it was for vacation Bible school, revival. Like, I was, I was wanting to be at church. But I still didn't get the message. I still didn't get the memo. And when I finally came to the understanding that God was calling me to full-time ministry, I went to April, and I was terrified. We just built a big house. We both had new cars, new-ish. And so I went to April, and I said, hey, um, we need to talk. So we sit down, and the kids are in bed, and I said, hey, I feel like the Lord's calling me to full-time ministry. I think he's calling me to quit the nuclear plant and go into full-time ministry. She said, thank the Lord. She said, I've known for a year, but I didn't want to push you. I kind of feel like that was Elizabeth. I kind of feel like Elizabeth got there quicker than Zechariah, and she, she knew. Now, now, maybe she had some... I, I got I to gotta, I gotta feel like on some level she had a little bit of doubt early on, maybe. We don't see it as clearly as Zechariah or Abraham and Sarah. But, but whatever the case, they doubted. It's human nature. They doubted. But God did what He said He would do. Do we see a pattern developing here? Number three. Let's look at the birth of Jesus. Keep your finger in Luke 1, but turn over to Matthew 1. We're going to come back to Luke 1, but just kind of mark it or keep your finger there and then go to Matthew chapter 1. Because these other miraculous births are really cool, but let's look deeper at the greatest miraculous birth of all and the one that we're going to celebrate tomorrow. Let's, let's look at the birth of Christ. So let's start with Joseph. In Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, it says this, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is going to be the very, very PG-13 version of this, but uh, they had not come together. Am I good? For our understanding, we, we need to know that engagement in this period, in this context was a much deeper thing. It was much more involved than what we have. We can get engaged. People have been engaged. I mean, my goodness, Pam and Roy were engaged for three years on the office. Nobody got that joke. I thought Grayson would at least. Grayson gave me nothing. Um, 
you know, engagements here are not quite as binding as engagements at this time. This is, I think of their engagements almost like a pre-marriage. Like there were, there were some very rigorous things that, that were going on here. It was very formal and it was very public. And so there was a lot of shame that would be involved if you broke off a relationship and an engagement. So it was discovered before they came together, she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. He was trying to do the wrong thing in the best way he could think to do it. Can I just tell you, it's never a good time, no matter how good of a way you think to do it, it's never a good time to do the wrong thing. But after he had considered these things, in other words, he had kind of made a plan, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet in Isaiah 7, 14. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So, so what did Joseph do? He, he took a similar path. He, he had his own plan. He had doubts. He, he, he was unsure of what was going on and how he could best extricate himself from this situation. In verse 19, he, he, he had his own plan, but then by the time we get to verses 24 and 25, he obeyed. Why? Power of the Holy Spirit. I believe the power of the Holy Spirit helped him understand what this vision was saying, what this angel was saying. He, he, he made amends with what was going on. He made peace with a, a calamitous situation, and he decided, I'm going to trust what I've been told. I'm going to trust this angelic message that I have been given, and I'm going to keep my faith in my wife. I'm going to keep my vow, keep my promise. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Now let's look at Mary. Flip back over to Luke chapter 1 and go to verse 26. I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories to read. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. That's up in the northern part of Israel. To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Watch what happens in verse 34. Mary asks the angel, How can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? See the doubt? How easy it is for that doubt to creep up? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you said. Then the angel left her. You look at verse 29. Her response was almost identical to the response of Zechariah that we read earlier in, in, in verse 12. 
Mary worried and she wondered. That should really help you feel better about yourself when you have a little bit of doubt that creeps in. When sometimes the message of God, the calling of God seems a little weighty, seems a little heavy, it seems a little extreme, a little hard to bear. Even Mary had doubts. She wondered. She worried. In verse 34, she even questioned the angel. She questioned the call of God. She questioned the message that she was being given. She had so many doubts that they overflowed into a question. How can this be? In verse 38, we see Mary do what every one of us must do before we really find favor with God, before we can truly say that we are a child of the King, before we can truly know that we belong to Him. In verse 38, we see Mary surrender. Mary surrendered to God. She, she allowed this message to, to resonate within her, to change her mind, to change her patterns, to change her, her preconceived notions. Verse 30 tells us that she found favor with God and she found it the same way we do, by Him looking to give it to us even when we weren't looking to get it from Him. I, I want to remind you, Jesus said that, that nobody comes unless the Father draws them. That is the grace of God on prominent display that God would condescend from His holy perch to call us, the unrighteous, the unworthy, to call us out of death and into life. To call us out of darkness and into light. To call us out of our sin and our selfishness into a walk with Him. See, even Joseph and Mary doubted. But God did what He said he would do. I want to tell you this morning that, that that pattern of human doubt and God unwaveringly doing what He said He would do is not just biblical, it is factual. It's not just something that used to happen, it's something that is happening right now. What God promises, God delivers. Again, even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because the only thing that God can't do is go against His nature. He cannot be unrighteous because He's righteous. He cannot be unholy because He's holy. He cannot lie because He is truth. He cannot do anything against His nature. And so He cannot go against His Word. He cannot backtrack. Once He is purposed to do something, He is faithful to complete it. So that brings us to a conclusion today. Here, here's a, a question I have for you that I think all of us need to consider. Abraham doubted. Sarah doubted. Zechariah doubted. We don't know for Elizabeth. I'm sure she had some doubt. Joseph and Mary both doubted. But what about you? See, we don't see a lot of angelic visitations anymore. I believe they'd still happen. I believe they're still possible. They're just not as prominent as they used to be. Again, the same reason we don't see all the signs and wonders we used to see because we have the text. We have the Word of God to guide us. We have the Holy Spirit of God living in believers who are helping us to carry out the will of God. We don't need a lot of the, the flash. We don't need a lot of the miraculous things to go on. And I can assure you that I'm no angel. But I'm here to deliver what I believe is a, a message from God today. Maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe you're here for the first time in a long time. And maybe you're going through a season of doubt. Maybe you're celebrating Christmas but only half-heartedly. Or you're only celebrating the guy in the red coat 
and the trees and the presence and the food and the family. Here is what I have been sent here today to do. I have been sent here today by God to tell you this. Messiah has come. Messiah has come. He lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death for your sins and for mine. He rose from the grave so we can have victory over death and the adversary. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That Greek word all is the word pos, and it means all. Everything, everyone, all of it has fallen short of God's glory. God designed us and made us knowing that if He gave us free will, we would make the wrong choice, and so He made a Savior. Revelation says He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before everything was created and initiated, there was no plan B. Jesus is plan A. Jesus was already foreordained, preordained to go to that cross and die in our place. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment that we deserve because we are sinful is to die and be sent to hell forever. That verse would be terrible if it stopped there, but it continues. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. We can be saved. We can accept the free gift of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus just by belief. Pistuo. Not just belief as in I, I kind of think, I hope. No, no, no. I believe. I have put my faith and trust in. I have what, what's called a confident expectation. That's the word hope. The, the definition of the word hope in the New Testament is a confident expectation. I, I don't hope as in I hope it's not raining when we leave here. I don't hope as in I hope I get a piece of that umpteen layer chocolate cake tomorrow. I hope as in there is a confident expectation that he who has started a good work will see it through to completion. How do I know he will do that? Because he always does. He told Abraham and Sarah a crazy thing. You are old. I mean, like, old. And you're barren. And yet I'm going to make you pregnant. I'm going to allow you to have a son. And from that son, kings will be born. Nations will be delivered. You will, I will bless the nations through this child. That's who God said He would make Isaac. And that's who Isaac was. He comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're old. She's barren. They have no hope for having children. Then he comes to them and says, I'm going to send you a son, and that son is going to be the forerunner of Christ to make straight the path of the Lord. And they doubted. They couldn't understand it. But God did what He said He would do. And He came to a little virgin girl, and He said, you have found favor with God. And when the Spirit has come upon you, you will have a son, and you will name Him Jesus. And the father was terrified. He didn't know what to do. He was embarrassed. He was trying to come up with a plan B. <laughs> Just a reminder, your plan B stinks. Go with God's plan A. They all doubted, but they all came to a realization that what God had promised He would do. And I'm here to tell you this morning, what God is promising through His Word for you and I is that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that He will see us through for eternity. He will give us a glorified body. He will make us like Him. We will spend eternity in heaven where there's no pain, no death, no sorrow, no sickness. We will be there if we put our trust in Christ. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave all your trespasses. That's what He did. 
It's what He promised He would do. It's what He has done and what He is doing. We were saved. We are being saved. And one day we will be saved. Because that is what God has promised He would do for those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may doubt now, just like Abraham, Sarah, Zechariah, Joseph, and Mary. You may doubt now. But God will do what He has said He will do. Here's the question I want you to ponder as we close our service today. And I hope if you don't know Christ, I hope you can't open a gift. I hope you can't enjoy your lunch tomorrow without hearing this question. Will you surrender just as they all had to do? Will you surrender or are you just going to wait, worry, and wonder? That's really where the rubber meets the road. Are you going to surrender? Are you going to continue to wait, worry, and wonder? I spent nearly 26 years waiting, worrying, wondering. When I gave my life to Christ, I've never waited, worried, or wondered since. I have a peace. I know that everything may not look okay, but everything's going to be okay. Because I have put my faith in Him. And even though I doubted, I know that God will do what He has said He will do. Would you stand with me? We're going to have a time of invitation, which simply means I'm going to say a prayer and give you an opportunity to respond to the Holy Spirit of God, respond to the Word of God. If you know today that you are in that void, that place where all you do is wait, worry, and wonder. You're not sure. You're not convinced. You don't know that you're saved. You don't know that you've trusted Christ. You don't know that you've really surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to give you an opportunity today. If you know that's you, if you feel that conviction that you need to be saved, I'm going to say a short prayer when I say amen. You can come forward and be saved. You can come forward and profess faith in Christ, repent of your sins, and put your faith and trust in Him. If you need to rededicate your life, you need to join our church, all that stuff is fine for today. But before we go celebrate the birth of Jesus, I, I want to know that He is born in you. I want you to be able to know without a shadow of a doubt that you have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and that your eternity is secure because you have made Jesus, you have acknowledged His Lordship, and you have put Him in the position He needs to be in your life, which is at the pinnacle, on the throne of your life. I'm going to say a prayer. When I say amen, if you need to come, you come now. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you so much that your word says in Romans 5, 8 that you proved your love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, you say that he that knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. I thank you for that because, Lord, I know that I had no way in my own physical ability, my own mental acuity, my own uh, good deeds, I had no way to get to you, but you came to me. Lord, I pray that you would do that for somebody today. If there's anyone here today without Christ, God, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would convict them of their sin. I pray that you would give them the courage to come down and pray that prayer to say, I want to give my life to Jesus. Lord, if there's any here that are still in that period of waiting, worrying, wondering, I pray that you'd bring that peace that passes understanding, the peace that only you can bring. And I pray that you would do it for your glory, for our good. We pray in the name of
Lord Jesus Christ.